Amen. A couple of reminders as I get started this morning. First of all, um, at the conclusion of the service, remember, since we are full uh, this morning, uh, James Humbert will come up and dismiss you by rows to go out. And again, we encourage fellowship and hanging out, so you're welcome to meet out on the sidewalk or over in the front yard of the parsonage or around the side of the church. Make sure you're making space for those that are trying to leave who may be... uh, less inclined to, to get face-to-face with you uh, just yet, so I uh, just want to remind, uh, remind you that of that. You'll be dismissed that way, and also I uh, want to remind you that if you are worshiping through giving this morning, uh, that as you leave, the offering boxes are located uh, on the uh, threshold of the door as you are leaving the sanctuary. Uh, this morning we jump back into our study of 2 Corinthians. We have been out for a couple of weeks. And uh, this morning we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. And again, if you haven't been here for the uh, study of 2 Corinthians, I am going to give a little context. So if this seems a little uh, like we're in the middle of something, it's because we are, but all will be explained shortly. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super-apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it comes as no surprise so it, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds let us pray 
Lord, these are strong words that your Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write. And I pray, Lord, that these words would take hold in our hearts, Lord, that as your church, we would recognize the importance of staying true to your gospel. Lord, not judging as the world judges, not valuing the things the world values, but Lord, that we would be a people that are guided by the things that you say are important. Lord, that we would take confidence in your word rather than the approval of this world, and that we would seek to pursue your approval in this world rather than the world's approval. So help us, O Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you don't have to be a healthcare professional to have heard the term Hippocratic Oath. Uh, we have a few healthcare professionals among us. But even if you are not one, perhaps you've heard that phrase used on uh, doctor TV shows or, or maybe even heard it mentioned by doctors themselves. But the, the Hippocratic Oath is, is an oath that's attributed to the ancient Greek physician. Hippocrates, and that outlines uh, what he considered the appropriate approach to caring for the sick and the injured. You may have heard it summarized with the phrase, do no harm. Well, there's another saying that Hippocrates is credited with inspiring that's very appropriate for our text this morning. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, that's one I know that you've all heard. Now, what he actually said is this, being a physician, for for extreme diseases, extreme methods of cure. And this fits very much with the theme of this section of 2 Corinthians Now today we're jumping back into 2 Corinthians and we find the Apostle Paul dealing head-on with the false apostles whose teaching and influence was poisoning the church. The times were indeed desperate and here in in this passage and the ones to follow, we find that Paul is about to bring the extreme cure. To the situation. Now, I mentioned I would bring you up to speed on the context. We know that 2 Corinthians is at least the third, but probably the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, a year or so ago, we looked at the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul wrote this to 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 clarify his ministry, but also to answer questions that the church had written to him. And and so in this book, we we find Paul responding to to questions that he had received and then also addressing major problems in the church, problems of disunity, problems of misunderstanding the role of uh, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul wrote that to correct them and also to call them to prepare to to collect a gift to meet the needs of the poor saints who were in Jerusalem. 
Paul wrote 1 Corinthians shortly thereafter. He visited Corinth, and when he visited Corinth, he ran into something that was unexpected. He was opposed strongly by these false apostles and church members under their influence to the point that when Paul arrived, he basically decided to leave because the, the opposition was so great. So he leaves and, and decides to write a severe letter to the church in response. He writes this letter, which is delivered by Titus. The church reads the letter, responds. Titus returns, gives a good report of the church's response to the severe letter. So Paul then in turn writes 2 Corinthians to further defend his ministry in chapter 9 to remind the Corinthians of the oath that they made, the commitment that they made to take this collection to, to support the poor saints in Jerusalem. And then here in chapters 10, 11, and 12 began to tear down the false teachers and expose them for who they were in the church. So here in chapter 11, Paul begins to deal strongly with the problem of these false apostles. Chapter 10 ends with these verses, verses 17 and 18. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So Paul writes, highlighting the, the futility of boasting in ourselves. But here, interestingly enough, in chapter 11, he begins by engaging in some boasting of his own. So what is up, Paul? Why are you doing this? Well, the irony here is that Paul is not boasting in his own abilities or his own accomplishments. In fact, as we work through this passage, we find that Paul is boasting about the very things that the false apostles had accused him of. So they had attacked Paul's physical appearance. They had attacked Paul's speaking ability. They had accused him of being only concerned about money. They had questioned his authority. And in all of these things, Paul says, you know what, that's what I'm going to boast about. And in so doing, he sets apart such a, a strong contrast between himself and the false apostles that, that it becomes clear that the way of the cross, the way of the gospel, the way of faithfulness for the body of Christ looks nothing like the ways of the world. And that is the message to the church today. Paul boasted in the things that he had been shamed for by the false apostles. In 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, Paul goes to extreme steps to defend the gospel, to, ex to defend his ministry, and to defend the church by using personal testimony, by using sarcasm, and boy, does he use sarcasm, and he uses bold confrontation, all to deal with the infectious influence of the false apostles. In verses 1 through 15 of chapter 11, we see the Apostle Paul bearing his heart for the church while at the same time laying into these false teachers, these false apostles. 
We're going to tackle these 15 verses under three headings. First of all, we're going to consider Paul's concern for the church. Secondly, Paul's comparison of himself with the false teachers. And then finally, Paul's confidence that the true nature of the false apostles will become evident to all. And brothers and sisters, it is my prayer that God would open our hearts to receive the spiritual feast that is set before us this morning. So let's begin by looking at Paul's concern for the church, verses 1 through 4. Let me read those to you. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now again in verse 1, Paul refers to what he's about to do as foolishness. And this boasting, as Paul terms it, is something that's going to go on beyond just today. So, so next week when we pick up in, in verses 16 through the end of chapter 11 and then the following week, Lord willing, in, in chapter 12, Paul is going, is going to, con- he considers all of what he's writing here as his boasting. And, and he does so to reveal the, the, the foolishness of the, the church's influenced by the culture and the, and the false teachers influenced by the culture versus the importance of the gospel in being faithful to Christ. So the foolishness isn't on Paul's part. The, the foolishness is the approach of the false teachers and the approach of the church in the ways that it had been swept up by that false teaching. Now, verse 2 contains a a powerful illustration that that is incredibly appropriate on this day of all days, this Father's Day. Paul writes, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul is writing of himself as a loving father that desires to protect and keep his daughter pure in order to present her to her husband on her wedding day. Now I know every one of the fathers in this room and I know you fathers of daughters want to do all that you can to protect and purify all your children, but especially your daughters. Amen? There are a few, if any of us in here, who would not go to, to links including bodily harm if, if our children were in danger. And Paul is expressing such love for the church and such concern for the church that he's presenting himself as a dad who wants to make sure that that on her wedding day, that day when, when she is united to 
who will be the, the, the primary male, human male in her life. He wants to be able to say, you know what, I did all that I could do in order to prepare my daughter for this day when she leaves the home. And Paul says, listen, it's the same for you, church. I am concerned that you are being led astray and I want on that day when Christ returns to be able to present you to him as one who has stayed the course, one who has not been swept up into the false teaching, not one who has been swayed by the culture, but one who is pure in Christ. Paul is jealous for their purity. And brothers and sisters, we need to guard our hearts in the same way. We are just as susceptible to the influence of the culture as the church in Corinth was, brothers and sisters. We are just as susceptible to getting swept up in things that are not of internal significance, things that are even dishonoring to the Lord. Yes, things that are even sinful. And Paul reminds us that we are to be about one thing. Faithfulness to the one to whom we have been betrothed, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we see that Paul is jealous because he feared that the influence of the false teachers would lead them away from Christ. He uses the example of Eve. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now we all know the story, right? Genesis chapter 3. Satan shows up in the garden in the form of the serpent and he begins to question Eve with the phrase, Has God not said you shall not eat from any tree, the fruit of any tree in the garden? And in his deception, he begins to question Eve in a way that causes her to begin to wonder that somehow God might be holding out on her by not allowing her to eat from the fruit of one tree in the garden. The tree of the, fr- of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve was deceived into thinking that God was denying her something good. And that is exactly how false Teachers operate today and always. They take away from or they add to the truth in ways that appeal to our carnal or fleshly desires. And we must be on guard. And we must also remember, brothers and sisters, that false teachers are instruments of the devil. We'll see that later in this passage. No matter how entertaining they may be, no matter how big and bright their smiles may be, no matter how large their following may be, whether they are witting or unwitting in their deception, they are being used by the evil one, to lead the body of Christ astray. 
And in our day, it's not just false teachers. It's also the pressures and the influence of the culture, is it not? We feel the pressure, or we are being pressured to compromise or reject the things that God has said clearly in his word. Look at the debates that rage today. Marriage, sexual ethics, gender, all of these things that are being brought into question. Many churches being swept up into and embracing these ideologies that are contrary to what God has clearly revealed in His Word. And behind it all is the whisper of the devil. Has God not said? Yes, He has. What will we believe? I love this quote by R. Kent Hughes concerning false teachers. He says, The wolves, false teachers in the church that devour sheep, do not howl or bare their teeth. (laughs) They come in sheep's clothing, smiling, reciting scripture, full of understanding, promising something more than Christ. We must be on guard. This is not just a battle for leaders and pastors in the context of a church, but what have we learned all along in our study of 2 Corinthians? The church is responsible for the health of the church. And so we must be grounded in the Word of God. We must be able to to, to smell the counterfeit because we are, are so... Grounded in the truth. We, we aren't simply guided by unction and ideas. We need to be led by the objective truth of God's word. And Paul is concerned for the church in Corinth. And if Paul could talk to us right now, he would say he is concerned, not just for the church in America, but for this church because we are all just a generation away from rejecting the truth unless we are intentional to be grounded ourselves and to make sure that those who come behind are grounded as well. Don't believe me? Look at the history of Israel. We, we considered the exodus and the entering of the, of the promised land last week. As we looked at Psalm 112, what happened one generation after Canaan was conquered? People were doing what was right in their own eyes. They had forgotten the ways of the God who had basically given them the land. So don't think it cannot happen to us if we are not on guard, if we are not more enamored with what God says to us than what the world says about us, brothers and sisters. In verse 4, we see that's exactly what the false apostles were doing. They were promoting what Paul says is, is a different doctrine than what he had founded the church on. They preached Jesus, but not the true Jesus. 
They pro- promoted spirituality, but not the kind that, that re- revealed the true work of the Holy Spirit. They preached a gospel, but it was not good news because it was a false gospel. It did not lead to eternal life, but it led to condemnation. And Paul writes powerfully and even with a little sarcasm. In that last phrase in chapter or in verse 4, you put up with it readily enough. Says you're not dealing with this church. These are, are things that are contrary to what you have been taught as sound doctrine, and you allow it. The false teachers flourish because you allow it. That's what Paul's saying. So he's saying, don't put up with it anymore. He was concerned that they would believe the false apostles, and many in the church had. And in Paul's mind and in our mind, it must be clear. Those things must be shut down in the context of the church. Even if the pastor you love is the one who is promoting false doctrine, it must be dealt with. We can see clearly that Paul's concern for the Corinthian believers was well-founded. In verse 5, Paul begins to distinguish himself further from the false apostles who had poisoned the church. They had perverted the gospel and undermined his apostolic authority. Verses 5 through 9, we see Paul's comparison. He continues, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super-apostles, insert sarcasm. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, And was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Now Paul is dealing head on with some of the slanderous accusations that the false apostles had made towards him with biting sarcasm. And also by exposing the worldliness of their ministries themselves. Now again, remember the the claims that were being made against Paul. We pointed this out before, but basically all the accusations that Paul was answering reflected what the culture valued. Remember, Corinth was a city that it it was under the, it it was a Greco-Roman culture, and so they valued philosophy. Philosophers would come to town, and they would stand in the square, and there'd be many of them, and they would take turns speaking, and they would make money doing that, and and it was as entertaining to them as football is to some of us. They would sit and listen and watch for hours. They would identify themselves with certain philosophers. 
And when Paul came to down, remember 1 Corinthians, he made a point to, to, to want to do everything so differently that there would not be a confusion between his ministry and the, and the speaking of the philosophers. So he didn't take money. He didn't try to use rhetorical skill and, to, and flourish as he spoke. But he was plain and clear on the gospel because he did not want to be lumped in as simply another philosopher coming to town because his message truly was the word of life. The, the Greco-Roman culture valued physical appearance as well, rhetorical skill, self-promotion. And Paul makes it clear that his approach was the exact opposite. But in verse 5, he says, I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Now, Paul's standard of measure is clearly different than what theirs is. Theirs was worldly. His is based on the gospel. But Paul does not really think these people are super apostles. Let me just let you off the hook there. How do I know that? Well, when we get to the end of this section, what do we find? He calls them followers of the devil. So in referring to the false teachers as super apostles, Paul uses sarcasm to expose the foolishness of their claims. Remember, the authority of these so-called apostles was based on letters of commendation that they wrote for one another. You guys remember that from a couple of weeks ago? They, they, they wrote for one another that, hey, you can trust this guy. But the real apostles were what? They were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord. The false apostles were unbelievers, enslaved to their desires. And the basis for their successful ministry was grounded in worldly principles. The true apostles were, were consumed with proclaiming the gospel in places where it had never heard, been heard before so that the church would be built. That was Paul's ministry. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. We saw in chapter 10 that, that it was his goal to, to visit Corinth one more time and then continue beyond to places where the gospel had never been preached. So it's a total different standard of measure. And in verses 5 through 9, Paul deals with, the, with two of the charges that the false teachers had brought against him. In verse 6, he brings to light his so-called lack of oratory skill. And now, I told you before that, that I believe that Paul was probably one of the greatest preachers who has ever lived. And so when he talks about his lack of skill, it's basically in reference to the accusation made against him. He did not preach like the philosophers or the false teachers who mimic the philosophers. He says, even though I'm unskilled in speaking, I, I am skilled in knowledge. What's the difference? Well, the false apostles had letters of commendation. Paul learned the gospel from Christ himself. So he says, I'm not unskilled in knowledge. I'm not influenced by your cultural view of what speaking or preaching ought to be. But I learned of the gospel directly from Christ. And he touches on that further in chapter 12. The, the false apostles could give a good speech, but Paul communicated the words of life. 
The second thing that the charge they brought against Paul was his unwillingness to be compensated for his ministry. And, and this is one that probably seems a little bit strange to us, but we need to keep in mind what Paul is doing. Again, he's trying to distance himself from the practice of the philosophers and the false teachers by not taking money. Well, the charge against him in not taking money is, hey, even Paul knows he can't speak. He doesn't let you pay him for his work. Paul doesn't really think his message is that valuable. How do we know? Because he's not taking any money for it. And so that was a, a stumbling block for the Corinthians because their culture said, listen, if a guy can, can speak, he ought to be paid. And if he believes in his message, he needs to stand by it enough to, to demand money for it. But Paul was confident that there was a better way. Paul knew what was at stake. And he accepted support. But in Corinth, he chose not to accept support from them. It's not that we don't pay Paul or other ministers or missionaries for their work, but Paul understood in that circumstance that to take money in that culture from those people could be a stumbling block to their understanding the truth of the gospel. Paul knew what was at stake, and even though it opened him up to false charges, he knew that ultimately he would be vindicated and the false teachers exposed. We, we see that in his confidence in verses 10 through 15. Paul continues, he says, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Remember, Achaia was the region in which Corinth was found. So basically he's saying, As a, I'm not going to ever take money from you for my ministry. I want you to give to the, the, the saints in Jerusalem, but, but I, I'm never going to take your money. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So that it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now quickly, Paul could boast, and his boasting was in Christ and his work in Corinth. Paul could boast in his love for the Corinthians, verse 11. Paul could boast in his ministry because that had been ordained by God. And ultimately, the contrast that he is painting between himself and the false apostles would clearly reveal who was true and who was the pretender. And Paul was also confident in knowing that the false teachers were not of God at all, but rather of the devil. Now, why would Paul take confidence in that? Well, it's very helpful to know clearly who your enemies are when you're in a battle, is it not? It's the ones that you're not sure about that are usually the ones that bring you down. And so Paul is making it clear that in the case of these false apostles that, that he wasn't even... The, the least bit concerned that they might be believers. In fact, we, we see little 
hence, as, as Paul continues to attack these false teachers, of even a calling them to repentance, treating them as unbelievers. But Paul was confident that what he was dealing with was not of God. And in defense of the church, he's willing to go to great lengths to, to reveal them for who they are. And then finally, in verse 15, we see that, that, that Paul was confident of God's judgment. Their end will correspond with their deeds. Brothers and sisters, we need to look like Paul. We need to have the same concern for the church and for sound doctrine. Our lives, when compared with that of the culture, should have the aroma of Christ. We need to look more like our Lord than we do the culture in which we live. Brothers and sisters, we need to be confident. These are desperate times, not just for the church, but for the world. Things seem to go from bad to worse. But we do not need to fear in desperation, but be confident with a sense of urgency for what's at stake. Ruth is right. Hell is forever. And people must know and believe the gospel. This is not something that we add on to the end of the story of Christ's life to to give it a happy ending. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are key to our justification, being declared righteous by God. So we need to be confident in God. Brothers and sisters, we need to know what's at stake when it comes to the health of the church and the clarity of the gospel. And this must be all of our priority. The times are desperate, brothers and sisters, but we need to be faithful rather than fearful. Let us pray. Lord, I do thank you for this word. These are strong words uh, from the Apostle Paul. These are words that are a wake-up call. Uh, Personally, Lord, Lord, we confess there are times that uh, we do grow weary. There are times where we are distracted. And Lord, we pray for your help in remembering what is truly important. Lord, the, the world needs us to be your people. Help us to be your people with boldness. Lord, help us to resist and to reject any teaching that is unsound, any teaching that is incompatible with what we see clearly revealed in your word. Lord, that we would stand faithful, that we would be loving, that we would seek to be winsome in our effort to reaching the lost. And that you would be glorified in all that we do as your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.